Hello, welcome to my podcast. The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 9, Pan-Asian Superpower. In my last episode, I discussed the Sino-Japanese War. It was a clear victory for Japan. And we learned that Korea was at the center of the controversy. And it would not be the last time Korea was involved. One of the prizes Japan obtained was part of the southern tip of the Liaoning Peninsula in China. Finally, I discussed the triple intervention that came immediately after Japan's victory. In this episode, it is the turn of the century in Japan, while reeling from the humiliation of the triple intervention, channeled that energy into massive industrialization and modernization. She forged new alliances. Also in this episode, I want to talk about Japan's buildup to the Russo-Japanese War and that war's aftermath. By the early 1900s, Japan had accomplished most of the goals it had laid out 30 years before. The unequal treaty issue had been addressed by then. In 1894, it was addressed, and by 1900, those treaties were largely behind Japan. Their modernization not only included the political and military areas, but it was comprehensive and included law, criminal justice, education, and much more. It certainly affected almost every part of Japanese society. Truly impressive that they were able to change everything so quickly. In order to accomplish that, it had to be both imaginative and probably ruthless as well. But some things remain the same. Since the adoption of the Meiji Constitution, the issues between the Diet and the Cabinet still ground on, nonstop, except for a brief respite during the two years of hostilities with China in the mid-1890s. By the late 19th century, Europe's relationship with China had changed, and that affected the Japanese views about the Far East. Before the relationship, the European focus was on trade with China. But by the 19th century, It was focused on investment and protecting those investments in the Far East. European European nations took large roles and stakes in protecting their investments. This was of great concern to the Meiji government. All these European interests might interfere with Japan's interests and national security, or, at the very least, 
make political maneuvering appreciably more difficult in that area. A good example of this was during the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1900. Japan had supplied almost half of the military resources necessary to protect and relieve the foreign legations that were under siege by the Boxers in Peking. This gave the Japanese good international credibility and an important voice in the Boxer settlement, the protocols, and the indemnification discussions. More importantly, the Japanese used the interaction with the foreign nations in the settlement talks to impress them. The Japanese had showed restraint, comporting from their execution of military assistance during the Boxer Rebellion. Japan, of course, shared in the large indemnity paid by the Manchu dynasty as a result of the Boxer Rebellion. But following the triple intervention, Japan foresaw an inevitable class clash with Russia. Relations between Japan and Russia after the intervention were trending downward. By 1900, Russia was dominant in Chinese Manchuria. There were suspicions. The Russians wanted to annex Manchuria. Russia was already building a railroad through that area. Japan saw all of this as a threat to it and Korea, and also a block that would prevent Japan from good access to the Asian mainland. Korea was a flashpoint, and the Russians were the igniters. I think everyone listening to this know where this is going. However, the maturity of the Meiji government became apparent. They had learned from the triple intervention fiasco not to go against Russia without good allies. And Japan found one. England. And it's ironic that these two island nations that dominated their respective sphere of the world would partner in this. England and Russia were rivals and had been for some time. So England liked the idea of seeing Russia involved in a Far East war. England also had, at that time, naval supremacy over the entire world. And it was happy to share that burden in the Far East with someone they could trust. Also, England shared Japan's opposition to Russian expansion. After all, the idea of a former of a formal alliance between England and Japan took root in 1895 when England refused to join the triple intervention against Japan. England actually liked the terms of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. And Japan and England had cultivated a good relationship with each other, cooperating on Japan's modernization efforts. That relationship was further cultivated working with each other in formulating the details of the Boxer Indemnity. 
Specifically, neither one of those nations wanted a, wanted Russia to annex Manchuria. But there were also entirely selfish reasons that each country saw an alliance as a mutually good thing. England wanted Japan's support in its interests in India. In turn, Japan wanted English support in its interests in Korea. But neither of them were willing at that point to go quite that far. So for that point, that time, the alliance discussions were tabled. Japan then decided to approach Russia a last time to determine if some agreement between the two of them would be possible. You have to acknowledge Japan's patience and careful maneuvering here. It certainly proves the Japanese had learned from the triple intervention debacle. Anyway, after some back and forth between Japan and Russia, nothing came out of those discussions. So, it seemed, an alliance with England would be inevitable. And after both nations dropped their Korea and India demands, on January 30th, 1902, the alliance between Japan and England was official. The agreement recognized that Japan had paramount interest in both China and Korea. Automatic support from England was not promised in the event of hostilities between Japan and Russia. Instead, each country remained neutral if either became involved in hostilities in the Far East. The alliance effectively meant that Russia would not be joined by other Western nations in a war with Japan. The English wanted the alliance to serve as a warning to Russia, but without directly provoking them. Indeed, the document was meticulously drafted and worded to avoid any provocation. One other thing, the alliance between Japan and England assured there would not be another triple intervention. The alliance was the first entirely equal military pact between non between a non-western and a western nation. In response, Russia sought alliances with France and Germany. And in 1902, a mutual pact was signed between Russia and France over the objections of China and the USA. Germany declined. The net effect of the Franco-Russo alliance was only that it meant France would not come to the aid of Russia with a war against Japan, as that might mean war with England. So the stage was now set for a showdown with Russia. Confronted with these details, Russia agreed to withdraw her forces from Manchuria. But not all at once. 
but in stages at six-month intervals. This seemed like a victory for the Meiji government. The first stage of the withdrawal was carried out as planned. The next stage, however, which was scheduled for early 1903, did not occur. And it became apparent to the Japanese that the Russians really had not withdrawn the first time. They had just merely moved around assets. At that point, the Japanese Prime Minister decided that he would meet with Russia and determine from there what to do. But the hardliners in Japan wanted war and discouraged the Prime Minister from setting up any discussions. And the hardliners prevailed. So in January 1904, the Japanese Prime Minister gave Russia an ultimatum. When Russia ignored it, Japan had no choice but to declare war. It is important to realize that at that time, Russia was considered far stronger militarily than Japan. But Russia would have the disadvantage of fighting in a far-off war at the very end of a railway line. And also realize that Russia was predisposed with revolutionary movements closer to home. The Japanese chose the time well. February 1904. First, they crippled the Russian naval strength in Asia and then declared war. The first strategic move taken by Japan was to secure the Tushima Straits. Those are the straits, the body of water that lies immediately between Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Then Japan struck along the Yalu River that separates China and Korea and moved into Manchuria. The Japanese led a surprise attack on Port Arthur, modern-day Dalian, using both land and naval forces. And they overwhelmed the Russian fleet at Port Arthur and laid a land siege on the port as well. Some of the Japanese land forces worked their way northward up the Liaoning Peninsula, while another land force worked southward from the Yalu River in a pincer movement. This finally forced the Russians to fight a decisive battle at Mukden, which is now modern-day Shenyang in China, in Manchuria, in March of 1905. To illustrate the Japanese commitment to this war effort, they deployed 16 divisions at Shenyang, some 400,000 troops. They took the city, and the Russians fled northward through Manchuria. After decisively defeating the Russians in a series of land battles and surprising the Russian navy at Dalian, the Russians sent their Baltic naval fleet to the Pacific. It had to travel around the Horn of Africa, finally reaching the region in May 1905. 
In the Battle of Tsushima Straits, the Japanese Navy ambushed the Baltic fleet, the Russian Navy, and annihilated it. The two-day battle in May 1905, named for the small island located just off the southeast of the Korean Peninsula in the Tsushima Straits. It was not much of a battle from the Japanese perspective, as Japan had the superiority in speed and armament. The Russian Baltic Fleet, while an impressive armada, was comprised of old ships, unservable, unserviceable, and untrained crews. The Russians lost two-thirds of their fleet. The war against Russia was short, but it was costly for both sides, and both sides were eager to make peace. Casualty estimates were altogether, on both sides, around 150,000 men, plus 20,000 estimated Chinese civilians. Now, this is a good point to add the oddity to this war, that it was fought mainly in China and without China's direct involvement or stake in the outcome. Very strange. And for anyone interested in another perspective of this, I talked about this in episode 20 of my season one podcast series on the Qing Dynasty. In any event, Russia's military resources were nearly exhausted and Japan had run out of money. So Japan reached out to the Americans for help in mediating a peace treaty. Then United States President Theodore Roosevelt arranged the details of the negotiations. He was honored to do so. He admired Japan's pluck and efficiency. The location for the treaty talks would be Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they began August 1905. Japan sent as their chief negotiator a Harvard graduate. Japan was the clear victor, and it came to Portsmouth with stiff demands. She wanted, first and foremost, recognition of her supremacy in Korea. Russia had to acknowledge Japan's paramount interest in Korea. Japan also wanted Russia to transfer all of her interest in, in southern Manchuria to Japan. This included the railway they had been building in Manchuria and in Liaoning province. Japan also demanded that Russia cede to her the Sakhalin Islands that were immediately north of Japan. She also wanted a huge indemnity from Russia. Russia, however, strongly resisted the last two demands. A treaty was finally agreed to and signed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, The treaty, of course, bears the name of the city where it was negotiated between Japan and Russia, and the treaty was signed on September 5, 1905. It ended the Russo-Japanese War. And there are some really cool things about this treaty, in my opinion. 
that I think I need to mention. One, the treaty bears the name of an American city involving two nations in a war that America had nothing to do with and fought in a country also not a part in the war. Also, Teddy Roosevelt was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in resolving the conflicts, but he was never once present in Portsmouth during the peace negotiations. That's pretty remarkable stuff. The final terms of the treaty were that Russia acknowledged Japan's important interests in Korea, that Russia would refrain from military measures in both Korea and in Manchuria. Both nations agreed to withdraw from Manchuria, except for the lease at Dalian, and restore the area to China. Russia agreed to transfer to Japan its lease at Dalian and the adjacent territories. The transfer included any interest in the railway that Russia had. The next items in the treaty caused controversy in Japan. The Japanese wanted a large indemnity in Russia, and they wanted Russia to cede to the Japan the Sakhalin Island. Theodore Roosevelt, however, had sided with the Russians, and so Japan got the south half of the Sakhalin Islands rather than all and fishing rights in lieu of any indemnity. Apparently, Russia took a take-it-or-leave approach on the Sakhalin Islands and the indemnity, and Japan was just too exhausted to push the issues. The immediate aftermath for Japan was the treaty was criticized and denounced. The Japanese public was let down, and there was some rioting that occurred. Japan had spent considerable treasure, casualties, and other resources prosecuting the war. The indemnities would have soothed some of the costs of the war. Some Japanese even expressed their feelings of betrayal because Roosevelt sided with the Russians on the indemnities. Despite these failures and disappointments, however, the entire Russo-Japanese war campaign and the treaty that followed were grand accomplishments. For the first time in modern history, an Asian nation had defeated one of the world powers in a full-scale war. Japan now had a strong position in Korea and recognized rights in Manchuria. Add those to her control of Taiwan. If the Anglo-Japanese alliance signified the attainment of political equality, the Russo-Japanese war boasted that, bolstered that even more. It also served as revenge for the triple intervention and elevated Japan as a true superpower in the Far East for the next 40 years. Japan, now an ally of England, was expanding its colonial empire. Most of us know what that portended in the next coming decades. 
Indeed, many experts have opined that the brutal nature of the Russo-Japanese war foreshadowed the global conflicts that would begin in less than 15 years. The losses and embarrassment at Manchuria further damaged the waning reputation of Tsar Nicholas II in Russia. Japan now believed it could lead the region into modernity and civilization. Japan could rightfully claim she was the leader of a new pan-Asian alliance. In the next episode, sadly, it will be the last episode of this season two of this podcast series, but it will be jam-packed. I will summarize all that had happened involving Korea because it importantly defines the growth of Japan or define the growth of Japan. I'll finish out the Meiji Emperor era. And finally, the piece de resistance of this podcast series. I will answer the question I posed in the introduction of this podcast series. So thank you. It has been a pleasure.